We've asked and you have spoken. The votes for the survey awards have been tallied and the winners have been announced. Congratulations to the local legends who have taken the crown. This has been another amazing award season. Galvanizing your local communities to support the front of house team members we love so much. To see this year's winners, visit thesurveys.com. And to learn more about Yelp for Restaurants and how we support restaurant owners in reaching their potential, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Now here we go. We need to make this a respectable industry to create and attract a better quality of talent and always be upgrading. There's not a lot of programs out there. There's no law school for restaurant managers, right? There's no PhD program for restaurant managers. So it's really a business of learn by doing and get experience and hope you get noticed. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators served up on the house. Are you on track to hit your profitability goals for this year? If you're struggling to hit your numbers, I might be able to help. Here's how I do it. Every year, I offer five complimentary growth sessions to restaurant owners looking to scale. In this call, we'll examine your current situation to see what is and isn't working. We'll identify your growth possibilities by the close of the year. We'll uncover the number one thing holding you and your business back. And we'll develop a growth plan that will get your business results. Go to planwithjosh.com to schedule one of the five complimentary growth sessions. They're going to go quickly. They always do. Regardless of industry, starting and growing a business is a painful process, or at least it has been in my experience. It hasn't been a perfect road, but Jason Berry of Need Hospitality has worked to create a more sustainable path from four day work weeks to blissful partnerships. Today, Jason shares the recipe he's created for a better business and a better life. I've been in the restaurant industry pretty much my entire life. This is what I know, whether it's making burgers at Wendy's when I was 15 or waiting tables from the time I was 19 till about 26, 25. Some of the most fun work I've ever done has been in restaurants, making people happy and providing hospitality. And that's really where it all started. And I worked for Hillstone, which you probably know. I was a trainer. I was a server when I was 24. For them, they had opened a new restaurant in Los Angeles called Bandera, and I was one of the opening servers, and it was there until a year or two ago, and the lease was up. But that place really sort of just helped me formulate the kind of what I liked about this industry. It was they did everything they could to make it as black and white and controlled as possible, to the point where if you were a party of eight and you wanted to walk into the restaurant, they didn't have a table big enough for a table of eight, and they couldn't move the tables because they were bolted to the ground. Managers couldn't take a large party if they wanted to, unless they had a locket set in a couple of hours. And no private events, no reservations, no semi-private events, one menu all day. I mean, it took a lot of the dumb out of the industry and made it harder for, I mean, you could still screw up plenty of things. They took a lot of the basics out of the way so that you couldn't screw them up and just really sort of stayed in their lane. They've since evolved in reservations and additions to the menu and they have different concepts and they're all sort of the same, but they wear different 
skin, if you will. And that's sort of what drew me to the industry and brought me, got me excited about the future and from the thickness of a slice of cheese on a burger being the same everywhere to maximizing the number of brownies you can get out of a sheet pan with a special template that every restaurant had was just, it was cool. I felt at home and sort of the nerdy side of the business. I worked for them for a number of years, was a general manager, left to be a regional manager for a small restaurant company called Rosa Mexicano, which at the time had three restaurants when I joined and left as the COO 10 years later after 19 restaurants. And then my husband and partner, Michael, and I, who was also in the industry, decided we wanted to start our own little restaurant company and see if we could make money for ourselves instead of everybody else that we helped make rich. And we've been doing that. We just celebrated eight years of having our company and what started as one restaurant. Now we have 16 different things going on, some full, 10 full service restaurants, a couple of bakeries and four fast casual locations. So sort of just the evolution from hourly to management to senior management to owner has been, I think, sort of how it goes in this industry. If you take your time to do it right, there's a lot of people out there that want to own restaurants and, oh, I'd love to own a restaurant. That sounds so cool. Doesn't it? Doesn't it sound cool? <laughs> I think you can think of so many better hobbies sure. than owning a restaurant and thinking that it's, I mean, you have to be good. It's funny. I don't know if it was an interview question or something, but I once was being interviewed for a position in this industry and they asked me what I like about it. And I think it's because you have to be good at everything to be successful. There's no other American business where you manufacture and sell your product in the same building and get immediate feedback from your customer in that same building. And in order to do that, you have to be good at real estate and negotiation and, and HR and marketing and design and cost control and PR. And you have to be good at everything, or at least good at most of those things and not too bad at the others. It's challenging to be a jack of all trades. And in, when everybody's so niche and so specific in their careers, restaurateurs really have to be good at a number of different things that often have no relation to each other outside of the industry. It's so interesting, though, because typically you see what you become. So in an alternate universe, right, you work for one independent, right? And it was an alcoholic chef and it was an absolute shit show. And then you go three or four more of those and then you decide to yourself, well, you know what? I can probably do better than all these other idiots. So you internalize the best that they have and you move forward. And maybe you do as well as you've done. Maybe you don't. But there's something to be said for working for great people that have created a successful model, a successful blueprint. I would argue that if we were to 80-20 this, you're part of the 20% that had actually witnessed someone make money in this industry before striking out on their own to try and do something. When you decided to go independent, what were the models, whether they be financial or mental or operational, that you borrowed from the people you had worked with in the past that did world-class work? in building your own company? I think the models that we looked at were based on places that had already proven that they're successful. And so I think the term is pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered and didn't want to be a hog. And I've seen people who are so greedy eventually lose everything because they didn't think about the needs and drive, needs and motivations of those on the other side. 
if you take it all, who wants to work with you? And so our model was based on longer term generosity or partnership. A lot of models I looked at when we first started doing, and I do most of the business side of things for our company and development. And Michael, we run the company together, but Michael does all the design and the concept things together. And we make all of our big decisions together. He's a very talented operator as well. But we looked at a lot of models where you would raise money and let's say you want to raise a million bucks. And typically you give a percentage of that to raise a million dollars for, let's say, 50% of the company as an example, right? So you're valued at 2 million bucks. You have that million dollars and you say, okay, I'll pay you back with interest, 5%, 7%, 10% until you're paid back. And then thanks. Thanks for being a part of this. Most of the models I've looked at are basically loans from investors, right? Well, that doesn't sound like a very good, if I'm an investor, why do I want to loan you money and have nothing to show for it at the end of that loan? I can invest in something else and have equity in something. So our model is you get pro-rata equity for your investment, you get paid back with interest, and then you still own that equity for the life of the business. And so I don't think that's anything special. I think it's fair. We're the biggest shareholder of any of our restaurants, but we share in that upside. If we're successful, it's because those investors allowed us to raise money and open that restaurant. They should enjoy the spoils of that over the 10, 15, or 20 years if we're lucky enough to make it that long. So that's really been our motivation is sharing in that and the equity side, as opposed to making equity look like some sort of loan or making a loan look like some sort of equity which is what I see a lot of these models. And I would invest in that at 7%. I mean, that's not high risk interest, in my opinion. We get the interest rate a little lower, but we also, you have a long-term play as an investor if we're successful. And our eight-year-old restaurant, our first one, Succotash, has paid back its investors, I think, 3x in eight years. So they have something to show for it. And so do I. We own 60% of it, 65% of it. So... When you look back eight years and you look back over the first year of the first restaurant, what did you learn that you didn't know before? Because I mean, I don't know what your experience was. Mine was, I ran a bunch of places for a bunch of people and I thought I knew everything there was to know about ownership until I owned. And then I found it to be just an entirely different animal. So from a personal and professional perspective, what did you learn about yourself and what did you learn about the restaurant industry in the first year? Well, I asked myself a number of times why I'm doing this. <laughs> why I get a pretty stable, good income for a lot less money the first couple of years than I would have made. What did I learn? It's very hard to differentiate yourself to the world when you're an entrepreneur. It takes time. It takes energy. Everything's harder than you think it will be. You know, when you're doing a pro forma, you make an assumption at some sort of threshold, right? Here's our base pro forma. You know, and then let's look at if we were to do 20% more than that and 20% less than that and look and see how the numbers flow. And performers are mostly bullshit, in my opinion. They're swag. You don't know what your check average is going to be. You don't know what your best-selling item is going to be. You don't know how many people are going to come in every night. I had the advantage of running a restaurant up the street for seven years. Rosa had a location in National Harbor where we opened our first Secretash. So I, I knew something about the neighborhood, but you don't know anything, right? So you're telling people you're going to do 4.2 million your first year. That's not true. You don't know that. 
you're hoping. So there's a whole lot of guessing and the number of assumptions. I think the other things that really come to mind, I think what you hear from every entrepreneur is whatever you think it's going to cost, it's going to cost more. And whatever you think it's going to open, it's going to open later, right? I've never been a part of any restaurant in my career that has ever opened on the date that people said it would, whether my fault, a supplier's fault, the landlord's fault, God's fault, nothing opens on time. So if you're not in a position where you have a cushion, working capital, money in the bank for that rainy day, you're just a fool. What do you think is a fair amount of money for that? What is a good cushion for you? Is it 90 days? Is it six months? How much run rate do you want in the bank? As much as possible. Well, yeah. I mean, I've never opened a restaurant with more than $87 in the bank account. And it's a painful process. I think if you're really smart and you're in a good position, six months, and that's money for a rainy day, you can always distribute it later to back to your investors. Yeah, you'll have paid interest on that money. But if you have to borrow it from a bank, you're going to pay interest. And if you have to borrow it from yourself, you're just putting your own money at risk. So I'd say six months. When I build, when we do a budget, we budget an extra 10% for everything. That's probably a little light these days when everybody knows how to stick you for more change orders with general contractors. I've been lowballed a number of times by contractors who, and I built, we had just opened our 10 full service restaurants. So I think I'm a little savvier now than nine restaurants ago. And when I was a COO of Rosa, I didn't build restaurants. I operated them. They got turned over to me. I got the keys and then they said, go figure this out. But I didn't build them. And it always costs more. But you know, the GC will come to you and say, hey, I can build this for 2 million. And you're like, great, sign me up. And then about once a week, you get a change order for, well, you didn't say you wanted four light bulbs. You said you wanted three. <laughs> that sconce is going to cost you $50,000. You're like, what? Right. What? You, what? Oh, you wanted the toilets to flush? Oh, that's going to be an extra. Right. So that's a lot of nonsense between the GC, the architect, and you. But guess who pays the bills? You do. Right. And unless you're a GC or you're a senior development guy or gal has been through this a hundred times, your plans, your GCs bidding on plans and they go out to the subs and the subs bid it to the plan. And then they're like, oh, well, this is going to cost this. So every project has had change orders. The first four projects had change orders that were 10, 15, 20% of the construction price. And we signed them because you're also between a rock and a hard place, right? You can fire your GC. Then you got to go find a new one. Then they got to pick up where the last one left. You're probably going to pay more than that 10% delta. And it's going to delay your project. And you have a grand opening date that you got to hit. Otherwise, you start paying rent to your landlord. You get six or eight months, if you're lucky, to build a restaurant from delivery. You're screwed. So better the sort of the devil you know than the devil you don't. And it's painful. The most recent GC we work with charges us a little more. And in seven projects, I've had one change order. Whereas on my third restaurant, we had 63 change orders. Oh, my God. And each change order might not be a lot of money, but it adds up. Right. So unfortunately, those are things you kind of just have to learn as you grow. And that's an expensive education that investors are paying for. Right. Because do I open a restaurant better now than I did 20 years ago? Absolutely. 
the deals aren't as lucrative for the investors as they used to be, right? We're more of a sure thing than we were eight restaurants, 10 restaurants ago. So we get a little bit better of a deal when raising money. It's a little easier to raise money. My first restaurant, I didn't know where the money was going to come from. And I was, I had a lease signed. How do you raise money? You need a lease. How do you pay for the lease? You need to raise money. So you have this whole chicken and egg thing going on. You're unemployed. You left your nice job. Your delay. I mean, talk about stress. I mean, I'm just getting sick thinking about it. Thanks a lot, Josh. <laughs> that's, uh, it. that's what I'm here for. Time and time again, I see restaurateurs opening new concepts and repeating old mistakes. The most powerful tool we have is the experience of experts we can trust. Mike Benson and the team from Southern California Restaurant Design Group have built literally hundreds of restaurants and have worked with the best in the biz. Exclusively for full comp listeners, Mike and his team have crafted the essential checklist to opening a restaurant. This free guide explains in detail the steps we should take to complete our next project on time and on budget. Go to SoCalRestaurantDesign.com forward slash full comp to download this powerful free resource today. When I look back, before I started my first restaurant, all I wanted in the world was to own my own place. And then I got it and it was amazing. And then I was immediately discontented because all I wanted in the world was another place. And then I got that one. And then I wanted another one. Well, it's an addiction. It is, isn't it? And I think it's a lot like children in the way that you don't open the next one until you forgot how painful it was to open the last one. But there is this. Why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it always goes the same way. So like, why do I keep doing this to myself? Having said that, I myself, as a leader, as an entrepreneur, have always struggled with the distinction between ambition and greed, right? At what point am I just being gluttonous as I scale out? Typically, I have those thoughts in the lowest moments of my career, right? When things aren't going as smoothly as I had initially envisioned. But we all want to grow. I think it's a small percentage of restaurateurs that open a restaurant to just have a singular location in a lifestyle business. Most fail to scale. You opened 11 locations in a two-year span, which I would assume was not only a gauntlet, but probably one of the best educations money could buy. What did you learn about scaling during that period that you think would be valuable to the folks listening? Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, it sounds like 11. So four of those were four fast casuals inside of, we were a license, something called swingers, which is mini golf, right? So we had four of those that all opened at the same time. One was a small bakery. One was a small restaurant. One was a large restaurant. One was a delayed restaurant because of COVID. So they weren't all to the same complexity, right? Some were easier than others. Some were harder. Some were new. Some were the same concept that we had done before. What they all were was some were pre-COVID, some were COVID deals that were just too good to be true. And we had to take them because they were available. I would say, generally speaking, don't do that kind of thing. It's really hard on the culture of a company to take what you know in that institutional knowledge and then spread it out over two or three times as many spots and hope and think that you're going to be successful at replicating what made you special. We definitely struggled a little bit. We had to hire a lot of people and it just takes time to get to know us and takes time to get to know the business. And then you throw some of those new people in a new restaurant. I almost always 
never put a new GM in a new restaurant because they have so many things working against them to be successful. A bunch of lunatics running around telling them how to do things, not knowing our core values and culture and just the way we do things. And no matter how much you try to cover in training, you'll never cover it all. Right. So I think growth is really important, but it has to be, it's better if it's incremental and it's better if it's planned. And I think what a lot of people don't recognize is what sort of support will that growth require? At the time we had one regional, now we have three. At the time we had one corporate chef, now we have two. At the time I had no controller, but we hired one, now we have a CFO, right? And I'm one of those guys that believes you don't add people to the, I'm contradicting myself a little bit, but I generally don't add people to the business unless I feel the need, right? I wouldn't say I'm as proactive as I, because it's cash. You hire a CFO, it's going to cost 200 grand a year. Right. Guess whose pocket that comes out of, right? I've been doing most of the CFO work for the last eight years, but I can't do it all and I don't want to do it all, right? So I'm willing to give up some income in order to make my life better and the company run better by a professional CFO as opposed to some guy who thinks he's a CFO. And all that costs money. And so when you grow, you think about the incremental growth of that particular restaurant in this case, but you're not necessarily thinking of what it's going to take to support that growth. And I think most people who grow, at least the rate we did, miscalculate what that's going to really require. And we got it done and we did it really well, but the amount of planning and stress and agita and pain that we went through was rough. We have 10 different concepts. So it's not like we're all rolling out our Mivita, our Mexican restaurant, our Succotash, our Southern restaurant. This was three new concepts, a partnership, and they're all different flavors of growth. So there was no consistency, very little consistency other than they were all us. So I really don't recommend it. And there's a lot of things I've done in my life that I don't recommend, but it worked <laughs> for me. I'm also sort of just tenacious and don't want to fail. And so I'm driven by that perseverance of just figuring it out. And I've done this all before. I've opened, I don't know, 30 restaurants in my life. So I know what I'm getting into. But a lot of people who open their first restaurant have never opened a restaurant before. They've worked in restaurants, but opening a restaurant is very different. And you have one thing go wrong and it slows down the whole place. There's this big idea that it's kind of like the undercurrent for so many of the things that you've talked about today. And I think if I could just call it out, it's the dichotomy, the difference between what is an expense and what is an investment. Understanding that when it comes to people, you're only able to grow if you make that investment. So many of us see labor and see leadership as an expense when we should be earning a return on investment on everyone that we hire, on everyone that we train. And no different than figuring out that if I invest this much money in a stock, I'll see this much in return, that we can do the same thing with people. And if we see that we're getting a return on investment, we should double down and triple down on those investments with people to make sure that they stay, to make sure that they grow and that they grow us. I mean, does that resonate with you? Listen, you're going to pay for it one way or the other. So there's proactive expense, if you will, which is an investment, the way you're describing it, and I agree with you. And there's also reactive, right? Most of our industry is based on reactive expense-oriented allocation of money, right? 
I have learned over the years that if you are proactive, generally speaking, you're much better off. And people are an investment. If you're going to hire a CFO at 200 grand a year, you want his or her performance to be worth more than the 200,000 or you're just breaking even. What's the point, right? And that's to some degree how I think about my team strictly from a business perspective is this person going to deliver more than what they cost me, right? That's also one of the reasons why I didn't hire a CFO because I could do most of that work and not have to spend that kind of money. But it got to a point where I can't do that. And therefore, their value was much higher to me. And therefore, we pulled the trigger and hired someone. And I think you have to think about that. If you're going to pay for that, you're going to hire a manager at 50 grand. If a manager is willing to work for a full service restaurant for 50 grand a year in any big city, they're probably not very good. Or they have no idea what they should be earning. And they're not very smart. Either of those two things, you don't want that person running your business. Unless you want to live there like I did and when we opened Secadash, one of us was there every day for 18 months. And most of the time we were both there. And you have to really think long and hard about where you allocate your investments and what is the most bang, where are you going to get the most bang for the buck? What is the low hanging fruit? All these catch terms became catch terms because they're useful. There's catchphrases, the two minute rule. If you can do it in two minutes, do it right now. Don't put it off. Right. And you have to spend the time and energy to figure out what you need to be successful. If you cut corners, it will show. That doesn't mean be frivolous. I go to a lot of restaurants and I look at the menu and the menu looks like shit, right? They put no time and energy. It's dirty. It's in one of those plastic sleeves that hasn't been cleaned since 85. And it's got frayed, dirty guacamole on the edge and, this is how you're trying to get somebody to spend money in your restaurant and you hand them this, right? This is your Bible, right? Spend the money on the things that matter and save money on the things that don't matter. Value engineer where the guest doesn't see it. We spend a lot of money on bathrooms in our company, right? We believe that bathrooms should continue the experience in a fun night out in a high-end Mexican restaurant. It shouldn't walk out into the bathroom and think you're in an airport with bright LED lighting telling you how intoxicated you are and that it's time to go home, right? Or how tired you look. You want the bathroom and the lighting and the vibe and the music to continue that experience. That doesn't mean every bathroom needs to be a million-dollar affair, but it shouldn't be an afterthought, right? You're providing experience everywhere in that building. And... I think a lot of people forget about that. And if we're to chunk up and you look at the industry at large and you say it's just filled with unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. In your mind, how would you like to see the industry at large turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? We have to make this a place where people want to work and spend their career. This industry is filled with people who are on their way somewhere else. Almost every hourly employee in this industry, except people that have been doing the same job in the same place for 20 or 30 years, of which there are very few of those people anymore. The restaurant industry is a great place to make good money on your way to becoming a dancer or an actor or you're a student. And it's really great, but it's transient. 
it's not given the same level of respect. Being a chef now is respectable, right? 20 years ago, it was not a respectable, before Bobby Flay and Emeril Lagasse and Thomas Keller and Mario Vitale when he was at his prime and respected, those guys helped make being a chef sexy, right? They were the pioneers, Anthony Bourdain. And nobody's done that for the front of the house. Most people have become a restaurant manager because they fell into it. They were good at it. They didn't know what else to do. And somebody recognized some talent and said, you should do this. So they did it. We need to make this a respectable industry to create and attract a better quality of talent and always be upgrading. There's not a lot of programs out there. There's no law school for restaurant managers, right? There's no PhD program for restaurant managers, right? And so it's really a business of learn by doing and get experience and hope you get noticed. It's disappointing. I have two degrees and I believe in education. I think that really helped me in my career stand out. And a lot of people are not as fortunate to have gone to two good schools and receive that education, but I'm not any better than any of them. And there's a lot of those people that are probably much smarter about a lot of things than I am in, my, in this industry. And I would really like to see at least the front of the house more professionalized and respected and appreciated for the work. I mean, managers especially just get beaten up by guests all the time. And since the pandemic, it's become even worse. There's People are not afraid of acting out like they used to. The manners and the refinement and the etiquette have gone in the wrong direction in this industry. And COVID seemed to be like a turning point in the wrong direction for behavior in public by people. And that wears on managers. And I think a lot of people don't recognize how hard of a job this really is. And they've done studies that the stress level of a chef and expo is the same stress level as a doctor in an ER. And that's terrifying. That could be a stressful, but I've been an expo, probably spent a couple of years of my life. If you add up all the hours I've spent in expo, it is the most stressful thing when things are not going very well. And unless you've done it, you don't know at all what I'm talking about, but it's not appreciated the way I think what we do every day should be. And I wish it was. I think there'd be a lot more peace in the world, so to speak. Our industry suffers from razor-thin margins, and the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data-driven decisions. The numbers don't lie, and Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And would restaurants pair that level of visibility with guest manager and Yelp ads, they experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. That's Jason Berry. For more information on Need Hospitality, visit needhd.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. 
A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.